This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey there, so glad you downloaded this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the founders, the farmers, the innovators, and the investors, the people shaping the future of the agriculture industry. Hopefully you caught last week's episode with Mike Selden talking about his company, Finless Foods, and how they are growing actual fish meat without the fish themselves. And I and I hope that also spurred some thoughts for you about how that might also be relevant to other aspects of animal agriculture, because that's a good framework and context to to dive into today's episode. As you know, on the show, I, I don't like to just bring one singular perspective. I like to bring as many different perspectives on an issue as I can. So one perspective might say, hey, there's some problems with animal agriculture, so let's create this whole new system that doesn't involve animal agriculture. That might be more of the, the cell-grown meat, although Mike's views are much more nuanced than that, and I hope you listen to that episode. Another view might be, hey, there's so much good, efficient, productive aspects of animal agriculture as we know it. So why can't we just be a little bit more innovative and cutting edge and progressive with how we advance animal agriculture rather than just kind of throwing the whole thing out the window. That would be maybe more of how I would characterize today's conversation. We have on the show Carrie Ann Coker. Carrie Ann is a veteran of Elenco and Bayer Animal Health. She started her company Rock Road Consulting a couple years ago, and she helps a variety of clients mostly related to animal agriculture, the protein industry. And that that goes from investors to startups to established companies and anyone who might have uh, an interest in solving problems related to to animal agriculture. She's from Northeast Iowa, where she grew up on a large grain operation. But growing up, they were highly diversified with their livestock as well. They had milk cows, beef cows, feeder pigs, some purebred cattle. And so she's been around animal agriculture her entire life. After graduating from Iowa State with a degree in agriculture education, she started her career with Lenko where she's worked in poultry markets, the swine markets, and ended up leading the U.S. poultry business on both sales and technical teams, and then moved over to Bayer and did something very similar for them for all species in sales, marketing, and in their technical teams there as well. So anyway, I can't think of anyone more qualified to talk about innovation in animal agriculture, and we're going to spend about the first half of this interview talking about that. The second half of the interview is, is something that she's doing that's really, really interesting, along with J.J. Jones, who's also a former guest on this very podcast. They're doing something called Cultivated Conversations, which is literally bringing people to the table to share a meal and to discuss ideas related to animal agriculture. The crux of it, though, is they're bringing very, very intelligent, thoughtful people who may have very different opinions intentionally to to create a rich conversation. Very cool stuff all the way around. I enjoyed this conversation. I think you will, too. Before we dive into that, though, we do have a sponsor for today's episode, and that sponsor is Indigo Ag. What if surviving a drought began with a microbe? What if instead of 10 buyers, you could access 10,000? What if you were paid for the carbon your crops pulled from the air? And what if these what ifs weren't what ifs at all? At Indigo, they're working with farmers to question the entire agriculture system and reimagine everything from soil to sale. Yep, 
the whole lot. Visit indigoag.com slash questions to find out more. Indigo from questions we grow. Indigo, thanks so much for being a sponsor on the Future of Agriculture podcast and promoting content like we're about to share. Speaking of that content, here it is, Carrie Ann Coker of Rock Road Consulting and Cultivated Conversations. She's going to start off by talking a little bit about the jump she made from climbing the corporate ladder, she was very high on that corporate ladder, to starting a consultancy of her own and what prompted her to want to do that. Yeah, so you know, I've been almost 15 years in in corporate animal health. I, I had the wonderful opportunity of being trained by some of the best, you know, leaders in that industry, had a global experience with them, and really always was looking at the market through the lens of the company in which I was working for. So, you know, if when I was working for Bear Animal Health or, or Lanco Animal Health, I was certainly looking through it with the lens of, you know, what are what can we accomplish as a Lanco? And what that does is it really focuses you and, and puts blinders on a lot of the other industry. And as I was, I actually went on maternity leave, had my, a third baby, and I was really just kind of exploring and, and, and reading a lot of the different things that were, that were going on in the industry. And I said, I've got to see this from another angle. And I wanted to kind of expand my point of view around how we can really help animals be healthy, stay healthy, and get more engaged in the entire protein production stage and chain, value chain. And so that's something that really kind of prompted the, the jump. Great. And what does that look like in practice as far as, you know, I, I realize, you, you know, your why is, is helping them be uh, more effective and more efficient in terms of producing the protein. What are the problems on a practical level that clients are coming to you to, to ask for help with? Yeah, there's a, it's kind of a theme, I would say. One is really in the strategic planning base. So looking to drive a vision forward, looking to shift their business to become more competitive. That theme is definitely something that has really come forward in our business. I think the other the other is just how to be more effective from a commercial perspective. So we have a lot of innovative companies that are entering into agriculture right now, but they're coming from lots of different angles. They're coming from, maybe they're coming from a food industry, maybe they're coming from a tech industry or tech background, but have really not this inherent understanding of the nuances that come from protein production. So one of the things that I do at Rock Road is really help them understand these nuances that protein production has in each of its their own industries. You know, there's there's certainly a big difference between swine producers and poultry producers and, and, and cattle ranchers and farmers. And there's these unique elements about the way the industry is structured and how they make decisions that we we really help kind of I would say translate those nuances into really meaningful insights for for companies to drive their businesses towards. It, it, it would seem to me, you know, looking at ag innovation in general, a, a lot of the the crop focused innovations are focused on sort of enabling the farmer, and then a lot of the protein innovations you read about are like 
eliminating the farmer, you know, like or, or the producer, you know, plant-based or, or, or lab-grown cultivated meat, I think is what they're calling it these days. But so, so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of weird when you're talking about kind of innovative people entering the space, are you talking about those who are trying to equip the producer or maybe just talk me through that. If it do, are we seeing a lack of innovation for, for those saying, Hey, we have a really efficient system of producers producing animal protein. Let's just help make them even more efficient if possible. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to break that into kind of two points because I think they're there's a little bit of both going on, right? So we have this alternative protein movement going on. Today, I read an article in Ag Funder about a new fund that is being developed specifically for alternative proteins. And their investment thesis was really focused on, historically, we've always been able to replace animals as with technology. So for example, cars replaced the horse, petroleum replaced whales, tractors replaced oxen. And that's the thesis that they're going after. They're going after a full kind of replacement of, of protein. I think that's very interesting. And certainly they have a point. I also believe that for that to happen, there's a lot of things that need to come into play, like you know, nutritious value and cost and all of those things that they also, I think, recognize. But on the protein production side, on the traditional protein production side, we have also got to recognize that that is a, a serious and real threat to the way that this industry works. And so our ability to innovate and change has got to happen at a much rapid, much more rapid pace. So I think about just my experience, for example, in animal health. You know, here we are, I've been in, I've been in the industry for over 15 years. And since the day I've started, we've been talking about replacing the use of antibiotics. The bottom line is animals still get sick and we still need to treat them. So a full replacement of antibiotics, while it be difficult, we're still not cost effective even 15 years later. And I'm not sure if that's the lack of innovation or if that's the lack of willingness to aggressively change and see that the market dynamics are driving that. And so while they're the, you know, the customers that I certainly serve have really innovative technologies that are meaningful to driving value for producers, I also think that they're incremental stages. So we've got to start focusing on major disruptive chain in the, in, in the value chain of, of traditional protein production so that we can at least compete. If we've got entire you know, investment funds focused on replacing us, I think that's a, a, a real wake-up call that I think I'm hoping that producers really take seriously. And I think there's a group of producers out there that don't take it seriously. So I think they're, well, they're always going to want a really good steak. Well, I always ask the question, have you tasted this alternative protein? Well, of course not, right? And to be quite frank with you, I'm not a sophisticated palate, but I can't quite tell the difference. And so, and I'm a, a, a lifelong meat eater and, and want to be and want to choose to be. But I think it's it's real and we've got to, we've got to be much more aggressive on the, on the protein production side to do that. And so as I work with, with those who are serving protein production, this is the challenge that I certainly lay out. Yeah, definitely. And in your 15 years, you've been, you've been in the industry. Have we seen any disruptive innovation? I mean, I, I'm not meaning to bag on the industry, but I, it, it, it seems like maybe it, it hasn't seen the innovation that we've seen maybe elsewhere in, in agriculture. I, I completely agree, Tim. There there is a major lack of innovation. And if I would get on a little bit of a soapbox for a minute, when I think about animal health, 
and one, and I am a, you know, I come from this industry, you know, there's been a pretty big shift also in the investment that's gone into food animal health. And there's always a trade-offs that have to be made between companion animal health and food animal health. And companion animal health, quite frankly, is much more lucrative. And it's an elastic market that's growing rapidly. While the food animal market, from an animal health perspective, is being more highly regulated, it's it takes longer to get products to market. And to be quite frank with you, I mean, the last breakthrough technology that I think about is, is really the beta agonists that... Um, that have come out over, you know, what is it, almost 20 years ago. Otherwise, we've made incremental change. And so, you know, I think it's it's that balance between what the consumer is willing to accept from a, uh, a end product perspective that also drives innovation within the, the food industry, but also um, our willingness to adapt and, and be aggressive with it. And so, I, I agree with you. I'm just dis, I'm disappointed in our in our incremental innovation. And I just actually came from a, a ag tech forum, where you know I listened to lots of different startups. And while they're incremental in their improvement of of an industry problem, they're not necessarily breakthrough yet. And they're also not system solutions that really replace anything or completely fix the problem. They're just one piece of that. And so. I think there's there needs to be a, a pretty big shift in the way that we think about innovation in this space. Yeah, I, I do too. And actually, this episode is going to be publishing a week after an episode I did with, with Mike Selden, who has a company called Finless Foods. And essentially, it's mm, yeah. cell-grown cell fish. Yes. And so I, yeah, I, th- I just read about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think they're, they've got some really, uh, they've got a compelling story about about kind of how they're helping fish be more sustainable, but still a nutritious part of, of the diet. And, and I think those of us in in animal ag, and I, I'm I'm sort of separating animal ag from from aquaculture a little bit here, but need to pay attention to to that and and see the writing on the wall that that's likely what the industry is up against here in the future. And so I think this interview is coming at a really really good time here. But I, I think maybe the harder question, and, and I, I know that this is like the question, so so help us think about this the, as best as possible. You know, what can we do or where should we be focusing our efforts to try to make this a more innovative industry to keep up with some of these competitive threats? Great, great question. If I had the answer, I mean, I don't know if I'd be doing this podcast. <laughs> You'd be too good for me if you knew that. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, um, no, it's you. It's you're you're dead on with the question. I think it breaks down into into really shifting the value chain and really making pretty big disruptive moves in that. So when we think about just the way that we you know, raise animals, we bring them to market, we process them, and we deliver them to the food chain. Those are pretty, pretty much 100-year-old systems, 100 years old. So I was just at the, the Kansas City Stockyard. I love going down to the stockyards because it's just such a, a really cool place. And, and in today's dollar, the stockyard would have traded about $8 billion a day right? So like, it's just crazy to, if you were to like convert those dollars, I mean, that's, that's a tremendous amount of commerce that happened in a single location in a single place. And what happened to the stockyard was it was completely replaced by processing being closer to production, right? Mm -hmm. That, that shift moved. A fire was really the catalyst that shifted 
to rebuild processing plants closer to production. I find that to be fascinating. Um, but yet those processing plants are still the same ones that were originally built way back then, right? Like, I mean, maybe some modernization has happened, but still that supply chain is exactly the same. And so until we start changing the way that we buy and sell along this line, I, I think that we're, I think we're in big trouble because I don't think we can shift the, this current, this current supply chain can't shift fast enough to meet consumer demand. So I think that's what has to happen and I don't know that I have the answer, but I think we need more people and more capital focused on that. And feel free to, to answer this question or not, but you have a unique background because you, you've got beef and dairy in your background, but then you've also got the mon monogastrics, the, the swine and poultry that you've worked yeah. with in your career. Is there one aspect of animal agriculture that, that seems more at risk than others in, in the future? I mean, intuitively, my mind would go to ruminants are probably safer because they have a compelling case to be made that, hey, we can take resources not available for human consumption, like these you know grasslands that can't be grown row crops on, and, and convert them into protein. And that's really cool. But monogastrics can't do that. So are they more at risk? But on the flip side, you see poultry kind of outpacing everybody in growth of, of consumed protein. So maybe they've got a case. Is, is there any, any aspect of animal agriculture that you see maybe more at risk than others? I probably would answer that just slightly different. I, you know, I would, my first response before I heard what you said was my first response would have been the cattle industry. One, the supply chain in the cattle industry is fixed based on land, hmm. right? So that doesn't, that's not going to probably change, right? So how, how could it possibly change is the way that we buy and sell along the value chain. There's still a tremendous amount of trading that happens along the chain, right? That's not how it works with swine and poultry. We're fast. You know, in 42 days, we can deliver whatever kind of chicken you want when you, you want it, right? We can do that in the poultry industry. Swine, not quite as much, but certainly faster than cattle. So, you know, I always look on the, on the cattle side, it just being so much slower of a supply chain, so much more deliberate based on the fixed land element of you know, how cattle are traded and moved, that it doesn't enable us to deliver consumer demands at a rapid pace. There's just not enough alignment there. So that's kind of how I think about it, where I think, you know, milk and eggs and certainly poultry and then second or, you know, lastly, swine, I think has an advantage over, over the cattle industry. I also say, you know, probably on the beef side of things, it's the, the least branded. You know, we have big, huge, multi-billion dollar brands on the poultry side. We don't have that as much on the swine and the cattle side of things from a from a end product perspective. And that also drives your ability to shift and deliver to a consumer. So, you know, that's kind of how I think about it. I think they're really at risk because of the, the structure in which those products are raised. I think that on the flip side of that, I would also say that it kind of protects them, right? Because at the end of the day, just like you said, you have to, you have to raise those animals and you certainly can do it in a very environmental friendly way. And they, they have some huge environmental benefits from, from the recycling element of feedstuffs, right? Mm -hmm. But certainly can't respond to consumer demands quite as fast. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of consumer demands, I mean, there definitely is a push out there among what I might consider elitist celebrities to, to get people to eat, you know, eat less meat, which to me seems like a bad strategy. I don't know that Americans have ever eaten less of, of anything, but do, do you see that as a threat where people are just going to say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to eat less meat? 
Well, it's funny that you said that because yesterday I was at a conference and Jeff Simmons, the CEO of Elenco, spoke at, at the conference and he was he was talking about how when you look at the facts, protein production, traditional protein production, and the per capita growth has moved up 20 pounds in the Western diet. So if we look at how we are eating on in the in the Western diet, it's a lot more milk, meat, and eggs than it ever has been. So. I think that's something that's kind of interesting. Now, I want to dig into that, but when I heard him speak on that, I thought that was a real insight. When we really dig in, we talk about the 4 to 5% and how that's growing, but we're not talking about how the entire market is growing for protein, and it's significant. Absolutely. You have sort of started, uh, you and, and JJ Jones have, have sort of started an interesting initiative that I think really speaks to, you know, what can we do to to innovate and to maybe create a culture around this industry that that embraces innovation a little bit more. And, and the project you you and JJ have started is called this Cultivated Conversations. Can, can you just take us back to what led to the formation of Cultivated Conversation? Yeah, it's funny because coming home from this conference that I was just at, it kind of, you know, revived all of my energy around Cultivated Conversations again. And I was just on the phone with JJ to share my insights. But you know, we had we meet, we're, we're good colleagues and friends, and we were just really sharing our experiences as we both had come from home from some conferences, and we were just disappointed. Hmm. We were disappointed in, in our ability to interact and, and really learn and really have the stakeholders who were all in the room, getting them all together to have a really dynamic and meaningful networking and conversation. So just like the conference that I, was just, I just came from, you know, we had CEOs from animal health companies, from, you know, large cooperatives, from ag tech companies, from large food companies. We had farmers in the room all sitting around and we were watching, you know, a panel discuss, you know, the future of ag tech, if you will. That's, that's interesting, but what, what we are seeing is missing is really the opportunity to engage in a dialogue. So it's one thing when you have a facilitator who's, you know, having a conversation on stage and everyone's watching, half of the, the audience is disagreeing, half the audience is agreeing, and, and we're really not able to share the full picture. And so this is where JJ and I thought, you know what, wouldn't it be amazing if we could invite all of those people over for dinner and have a dinner conversation? And what would that dinner conversation look like? And as we started to explore and really think about that a little bit more, we really settled on the insight that when you, we don't count a quote, LinkedIn contact until we've had dinner with them. That means that we really do understand and know each other. We have had an ability, we had a shared experience and we think that that really opens the line, lines of communication in a different way. And so we really built this cultivated conversation and what cultivated conversations I should say is it's a curated dialogue and dinner where we have a lot of diverse and accomplished thought leaders come through for a, really a gu guided conversation and breaking of bread. And what that does is the breaking of bread is a critical part. It, it releases, you know, any, it, it kind of, I, I guess I should say, it kind of turns down the tone of maybe our ability to disagree. It allows us to communicate more clearly because we're all going to be civilized at dinner. And it really allows the, the lines of communication to open. And then the second thing is we guide them through really interesting and difficult conversations that we've never had the stakeholders in the same room be able to discuss with one another. And so we started with an experiment and it was, it was, it was pretty fascinating. 
Yeah, I, w- I want to talk more about that experiment. But experiment, but before we dive into that, I I just couldn't agree with this premise more. I'm I'm I've always been a a really curious person and and somebody kind of addicted to learning and and growing. But I always hated school. <laughs> I hated school every step <laughs> of the way. Like lectures were not my thing ever. And, right, and right. so you know that's why I love this podcast is it gives me a chance to learn you know every single week. But I'm an active participant in the learning and, and exchanging of ideas, and it's so important to me. And for that reason, I, I really haven't got into conferences at all. I, I don't particularly enjoy going to conferences. And I, you're just hitting the nail on the head here. It's because I want to be an active participant in, in the body of knowledge that's being developed. So first of all, I want to validate everything you just said from my perspective, but also let's talk about this experiment. So how did you go about testing this thesis that this could work and what were the results? Yeah. So earlier this year, JJ and I said, we're going to just, we got to try this. We got to just see what would happen. And so we really settled on a conversation topic of the, the future of protein. And we started inviting food system leaders from all different kinds of disciplines. We had lawyers, venture capitalists, entrepreneurs, a chef. Mm-hmm. We had a theogen who had written a book about food and how it interacts with religion. We had some government officials. We had some animal health leaders. We had farmers. And we really, we, we kind of centered it around having them over for dinner to set, talk about, you know, the future of protein. What are the gaps? What are the opportunities? And we wanted to focus the conversation not on, okay, how do we defend ourselves, our industry, but more so focused on what are the opportunities that disruption can create? What are the opportunities that alternative proteins create for traditional proteins? We believe those opportunities exist. And so we brought them all together. We had a dinner and over the courses of the dinner, we facilitated really three different dialogues. One, what is the current state? Two, what what is, what is the change that is happening? And three, what are the opportunities that that change enables? Mm. And it was, it was absolutely fascinating. You know, we had a food historian there who was sitting at the table with a veterinarian, a farmer, and a food chef startup company. And the dialogue that they had, you, as you can imagine, was probably not one that they had ever had before. There's no reason for that group of people to ever be in the room and certainly not have a Denver conversation. The outcome of that table's conversation was the farmer met a vet that they used to have the conversation about health issues on their farm. But secondly, the food historian wants to understand how the vet's perspective of disease over time. And the food startup is now reading and and providing input into the food historian's new book. Hmm. So, you know, those are, those are connections. That's real networking, right? That's a, that's an outcome that you can count on. And who knew we couldn't have, JJ and I could certainly have not planned for that, but it was a a great, you know, a great kind of ending to that story. That's fantastic. And and how did you choose how many people were there? How did you choose those people? And are you going to do this again? Because it's making me interested and hungry. Yeah, absolutely. So we did, we had 18 people there. We really focused on keeping it very small. We also made deliberate decisions around, for example, we only wanted four people at the table because six people at a table 
creates pairs of conversations. Four people at a table really allows all four to interact in a comfortable way. So we made decisions like this. We, we had them in groups of four so that they could really have kind of full-on dinner conversations. And then we also made decisions like having the room a certain square footage. I know this sounds so silly, but but it really changes the dynamic because what we didn't expect to happen is as we were sharing as a broader group, the interactions from table to table. So, you know, we would definitely have, you know, our government official responding to a comment of the venture capitalists and the farmer responding to a comment of, of the environmentalist. And so that dynamic we didn't really anticipate, but we were really I mean, the key learning for us is like having this intimate conversation is really meaningful and, and the details matter, I think, for you to f be able to f facilitate an outcome like that. Hmm. And were they given any sort of uh, ground rules as far as like, hey, you know, be nice to each other, no fighting? Or yeah. How do you keep the tone of the conversation productive? Yes. We did. We definitely, you know, played by the Chatham House rules. We did send some pre-work to make sure that people were, you know, prepared and thinking about the topic of conversation so they you know they could contribute you know there was a hundred percent disagreement on topics a hundred percent disagreement and 100 percent respect and that is a scenario that i think when in in a different way of communicating if you're in a you know in a panel or you're an audience member and you're listening to a panel you can have 100 percent disappointment and dis and disagreement with the panelist, but then you never interact or have the conversation to see the other side. Right. And so that's what's so unique about this. And so we're really looking forward to the next the next event here coming up in December. And and we're really digging into some of the outcomes that we had from the first one. Yeah, it's, uh, talk to us more about about the outcomes as far as you know if we're if for example myself I I didn't go to that first one, but if I'd like to learn more about the insights gleaned, is there some place I can go and get those, or is it is it kind of you know what happens in cultivated conversations stays in cultivated conversations? No, it, we we definitely have a LinkedIn page, cultivated conversations, where we've been sharing some of the outcomes that we learned on a, on a very high level perspective. We're certainly not, you know, associating those comments back to the direct individuals that were involved, but, and that's how we, we try to keep a safe environment for conversations like this to happen. Mm -hmm. Some of the key outcomes of the first event, really there was, there was six kind of themes that came out when we said future of protein, what are the opportunities that exist? And there was really kind of six themes. The first one was around the idea of decommoditization. So how consumers, you know, want what they want when they want it. And is this an opportunity? Can the food system be profitable and decommoditized? And how does it look at that? We had a, a huge conversation around, you know, craft beer is an example of that. Mm -hmm. Value shift. We talked about how will the food system realign margin distributions across the value chain. And so, and how does that possibly happen and what disruption could create that? And so we saw that as a, another opportunity. The third one is labor. Labor across the conversation in agriculture, as you know, Tim, is always a hot topic. So how do we reimagine the supply chain? How do we reimagine how things are done and really challenge those that are focused on solving this problem of labor and agriculture to you know, really not just make the labor that's there more efficient, but how do we actually re be able to take on new jobs that we don't have to hire new people for? So that's, that's the challenge that we walked out or opportunity that we walked out with. The last three, logistics. 
how does the food system produce, process, distribute the right amount of protein at the right time safely to meet consumer demands? And we talked about that earlier in the conversation. This is a big one. This is actually the topic that we're going to take the next conversation through, where we're going to invite supply chain players from across the protein supply chain and really start digging in how does this, how can we make a better supply chain? The environment was certainly a conversation. We think there's a lot of opportunity and, and desire to have an aspirational goal of becoming beneficial to the environment and ensuring no one goes hungry. So what opportunities exist in that, that way? And the last one was capital. All of this takes money and it takes investment. And so in what ways can we, can we draw funding and capital to meeting these needs and make this a really hip place to invest. And, and we we're seeing some funding come in mostly on those, the, you know, the big funding coming in on the, the protein alternatives, but how do we make, just make the supply chain a little bit sexy to bring some capital in? And so those were the opportunities that we think are, are real. And, and how do we, how do we make those come to life? I think the next conversation we host is really going to be focused on um, that supply chain. How will, how will the food system produce process and distribute, and we were really looking for participants to come from all elements of the supply chain. And that event we're going to host here in Kansas City, um, December fifth. And we are opening that one up a little bit more. We certainly have invited guests, but we'll, you'll be able to find our event on Eventbrite. And again, December fifth here in Kansas City is what we're we're looking to have the next cultivated conversation. Okay, I'll make sure I put a link to that in the show notes for anybody listening that wants to be a part of that. Because yeah, I remember when I first heard about this this concept. You know, I I've known JJ for a long time, and you and I have met and known each other for a little bit here. And I thought, oh well, that's so cool because I you know first of all, I would travel across the country to go to any dinner party JJ Jones hosts anyway because he's such <laughs> a foodie. Me too. Me too. <laughs> but secondly, you're like, okay, that's really cool. We get to talk about issues I'm passionate about, but then. Then after the event, you know, some of the people that I won't name them by name, but have been on this podcast told me it was, it was a game changer. It, it was something where they had never experienced anything like it and they were excited for future cultivated conversations. So if you're listening, thinking, okay, it sounds like a fun dinner party. It's way, way more than that. And I, I'm excited for the deep insights that, that are going to continue to come from this. So if you're interested in the, you know, the supply chain related to animal agriculture, definitely go to the event, right? For cultivated conversations and, and, and maybe get your name in the hat to potentially join. Now you are, you are capping attendance. I imagine you can't have this to be too large, right? That's right. We, you know, it's, it has to be an intimate conversation. And what's so critical about this is that we have participants from across the spectrum. So, you know, we're looking for those different points of excellence or, or leaders in different, different areas of the supply chain that can really add a different point of view. And that's what makes this so special is that we really bring our expertise to the table to, you know, consider for consideration. And I think that's, that's the key part of how this becomes successful. Cool. And I should mention as well, we, we've talked about JJ several times. He's way back in episode 23. So I don't even know that we go back that far on iTunes. You may need to go find it online or something if you want to listen to that. It was back when he was talking about the Center for Food Integrity. But so yeah, to, to, to wrap things up here a little bit, it, I, I'd just love from a high level to get your thoughts on why you remain committed and, and bullish you know, animal agriculture, despite some harsh criticism from people who, who maybe don't understand it or don't appreciate it. I mean, first and foremost, I believe in safe and nutritious food is absolutely critical for health, for wellness of people, for mental health. I think all of those things are, this is a fundamental element of our being. 
And I also um, am passionate about food and how food brings people together and how it is, it's, it's inherent to our culture into all cultures. And that part alone, I think is just a really noble cause. So when, when, when I go out on the farm, on the ranch, whatever kind of production it may be, I am just in awe of the hardworking men and women who make all of this happen. And so selflessly, it's just the most humbling industry to serve. And it's something that I'm just passionate about those people. I'm passionate about our cause and what we contribute to society on the, you know, on the biggest level. But more, more than anything, it's the people that we can serve. And, and I think I believe so strongly in their, in their humility and the way that they do this, that anything that we can do to help is just a small drop in the bucket. So I get really passionate about agriculture, have been my whole life. And it's certainly, it's, it's more than a choice to, to play in it. It's, it's, you know, a lifelong commitment. Yeah. And I appreciate uh, your, your commitment to trying to make it a more innovative place. And I, I really think these, these cultivated conversations, I've always been a big believer that innovation happens at the intersections between, you know, different ideas, different knowledge, different perspectives, and, and bringing those people together who wouldn't normally meet, I think is a good place to sort of create the, the innovations that might be the future of animal agriculture. So I love that as a first step and I, I'm excited to see where it goes. So I'll remind everybody out there, it's December, 5th in Kansas City. Cultivated Conversations will link to their, their Eventbrite so you can check that out if you'd like to. A- a- anything I didn't get a chance to ask you about before we close out, Carrie Ann, that, that would be helpful to share an audience that is just very curious about the future of animal agriculture? You know, I don't, I don't think so. We would just, we would, you know, JJ and I both host these cultivated conversations for different groups who are looking to bring stakeholders together. So if you're certainly interested in that, we're, we're really happy to help in that. It's been a fascinating journey and I, I appreciate what you do in, in sharing and learning the way that you do. You have such a broad perspective on uh, the industry as a whole. And so thank you for just the opportunity to to share some thoughts today. My pleasure. Yeah. My goal is to, to for our Agrad 30 under 30 to, to be able to put together a cultivated conversation for those 30, because I think they, they have some really unique perspectives that would, that would be interesting as well. So yeah, if you're, if you're yeah. like me and would love to, to bring a group together to have a cultivated conversation, make sure you reach out to Carrie Ann on that as well. Just get in line right behind me though. <laughs> thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, thanks for being on the show. This has been a lot of fun, Carrie Ann. And is there a place we can send them directly to you? We're going to link to the event right in, in the show notes, but where else can we send them? Yeah, at the Cultivated Conversation page on, on LinkedIn, that's certainly a place. Or my my LinkedIn page at Rock Road Consulting or JJ Jones page at Roots and Legacies as well. So those are kind of three different places that you can find us and um, we'll be happy to get connected. Okay, well, I sure appreciate this, Carrie Ann. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Take care. Thank you once again to Carrie Ann Coker for being on the show. Really enjoyed that talk about innovation in the animal ag industry and what they're doing with cultivated conversations. Also want to thank Jeanette Barnard, who was one of several who actually recommended I get Carrie Ann onto the show to talk about some of these issues because super relevant to the future of agriculture. And I can occasionally be guilty of focusing too much on the crops side of agriculture and not enough on the animal side. Part of that's due to the amount of innovation that's out there, but also part of it due to my own bias as a 
crop science and management major myself, but enjoy these uh, topics. And I think they're going to be increasingly important as we look at alternative proteins and other things that are happening to the long-term viability and sustainability of, of animal agriculture. So I want to keep representing as many perspectives in this conversation as I can. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate your time, your attention, your curiosity, and your desire to understand this agriculture industry, industry that's so important to all of our lives. We'll be back next week with another Ag Innovator. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.